greater blessing, a day of greater joy, um, a day that will never end. And we do pray, um, and I pray for myself and for each of us this evening, that, that our eyes would be fixed upon that day, uh, the day of your return, the day when you bring history to a close and you transform us and glorify us and deliver us into the full enjoyment of the blessedness that you have secured for us. Uh, together with all of those who have loved you from across all of the centuries since that horrible, horrible, horrible cataclysmic event that has plunged us into this, into this mess that we find ourselves in still. Thank you, Jesus, that, that the day of final and full victory is coming. And help us to be faithful until it comes. Um, and use us individually, together as a church, to advance uh, your great purpose in the world. Bless this time this evening as we meet together. Uh, Bless these sessions as we're together in the weeks and even months to come, uh, so that our hearts might be encouraged by your word. Be here by your spirit. We need your spirit to open our eyes and open our hearts so that we can both understand and believe what is here for us in your word. Uh, So bless this time, uh, this evening, we pray. and We ask this, dear Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen. Well, it is uh, great to see all of you here this evening. Um, We are beginning this evening a study in the Revelation. And if that's why you're here, then you're here for the right reason. Um. And I have uh, some outlines for this evening's uh, time together, which I'll distribute, and I don't think this will be enough, but Scott, there are another 20 copies on the copier in the office. If you get those, then I think between what we have here and what's there, um, you'll be able to have a copy of this to look at. Um, I really feel like I was set up this morning, and um, I just want to tell you that that uh, I do not expect to answer all of your questions or remove all of the confusion that there might be in your mind about this. I mean, the way Zach introduced this thing this morning, it's like, come tonight, and every question you've ever had about the Revelation or every uncertainty you've ever reflected upon is all going to go away. Please, please, yeah, well, I'm counting, on, I'm counting on the Holy Spirit. Um, please don't hold me to that because we're all toast if you do. Um, but as we, as we begin this, um, as you'll see reflected uh, in the outline, there are a number of uh, preliminary remarks that I, that I really feel need to be made um, as, we, as we begin. And um, I want to begin, I guess, with a, with a couple of uh, just informational sorts of things. We have um, made available, and unfortunately all the copies of this were purchased this morning, but we've made available... Um, a study guide to the Revelation by Derek Thomas. It's called Let's Study Revelation. It is a very accessible um, commentary. Uh, I'd encourage you to, to pick one up. Uh, in fact, I think r- what Ruth and I would like uh, is a show of hands if you would like to have a copy of this so that we can secure enough for you. So it's. I think it's is it $10? It's, it's about $10. So if you'd like a copy of this, just stick your hand up in the air. There's uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, twenty plus, maybe twenty-five. Okay, once you get twenty-five copies, this is it's very helpful. Um, I don't um, I, I don't depend upon this in a slavish way. 
But um, this commentary um, does uh, reflect the approach that I will take to this book. Um, And uh, so if you want to have a better feel for how it is I'm coming at the revelation and uh, the way this book works, this would be a very helpful commentary for you to have. Okay, so that would be number one. And then the second um, just uh, informational item is um, that we will meet for session number two in three weeks. Now, the reason for that is that next week we have a covered dish dinner with a ministry focus. And then on the 22nd, unfortunately, on one hand, fortunately, on another hand, both Zach and I have to be in Orlando for um, uh, a commission of our presbytery to particularize or organize a new church in our presbytery. That's that's the good news. That's a very encouraging thing. Our, our denomination and presbytery are very committed to church planting, and um, God has prospered this particular church, city church uh, in Orlando, and they are becoming what we call a particular church, which means they will have elders uh, and will no longer be under the oversight of the mission committee, the Mission in North America committee of our presbytery. So that's a reason for celebration. Those of you who have prayed for our presbytery, prayed for church planning efforts, um, this is an answer to your prayers. Um, the downside is we both have to be there and can't, uh, I can't be here on the 22nd. So we will, we will we'll do session two on January 29th, which gives you three whole weeks to try to figure out Everything that I'm going to tell you tonight, okay? So just a couple of information items, the commentary, and then um, the, we'll, we'll meet next on the 29th. Yes, sir? Uh, are there more copies of the outline? Did we not? Any of those things still around? You didn't get one either. Yes. We are recording. The question, more copies, this is good practice for me, George. Uh, if We'll make more copies uh, of this little outline, but if you could just get near one, if there aren't quite enough, um, we'll eventually make sure you get one. And we are recording this, and these will be um, on the web uh, for you to, to listen to and review, okay? How many of you don't have a copy of this outline? A couple. Okay. Okay, now, this is all pre-preliminary, the things I've just uh, mentioned to you. Um, Now we're at Roman numeral one, preliminary remarks. Preliminary remarks, okay? Three of them, and I've, I've tried to, I went over these notes this week to try to give you an outline that would actually represent what I'm going to try to say to you this evening. So I have three preliminary remarks, and the first of them is this. My real aim here, in my, the, the, the kind of the big picture aim here, Um, for this study is to help us gain insight into the general purpose of this book. Okay, that's the big, that's the big aim here. Um, John is a pastor. Jesus is a pastor. Jesus is called the shepherd of our souls, the bishop of our souls. He is our pastor. John was a pastor, and John lived in a period of time in which the people of God um, were increasingly experiencing systematic opposition, whether from local municipalities or as you get deeper into the first century, where this book would have had particular application um, from the Roman Empire, the whole of the Roman Empire. Just to give you some... some, um, sort of anecdotal historical 
um, information or insight related to this, you, you all, I'm sure, have heard of the Emperor Nero. Nero was notorious. Nero reigned in the 60s, may have been emperor when Paul was executed. Um, but the, the historians, folks who have written about this stuff, tell us that Nero, um, for example, blamed the Jews and the Christians for a massive fire that um, decimated much of Rome, uh, and the Christians became under persecution as a result of that. The historians tell us that Nero actually used Christians as torches in his gardens, would impale them, sometimes on crosses, but uh, in other ways, and would saturate them with oil and burn them in his gardens. Um, There are lots of uh, references in the historians to persecution throughout the Roman Empire. Well, that's the kind of setting in which this book comes. And whether you pick an earlier date for this book, uh, some people believe it was written in the 60s, the late uh, 60s. I happen to prefer the later date, happen to believe that the book was written uh, more like between 90 and 95. In a sense, with respect to this matter, it doesn't really matter. And, and it doesn't matter for this reason. Jesus, who loves his people, gives this book to his people, I'm convinced, for essentially two reasons. To show himself as king and lord over everything, and to reassure his people that he will come back, that he is coming back. Those are the two principal pastoral aims of this book, to see Jesus as Lord and King and to be reassured that Jesus is coming back, that he will return. And when he returns, not to get ahead of the story here, but when he returns, he will finish what he started. And what he started and intends to finish is the final overthrow of the serpent the final eradication of all evil, and the introduction of his people into the blessedness of the eternal state that he has secured for them. And in the midst of those two great themes, there is this recurring theme, I guess a kind of a third theme, of perseverance. God's people, because Jesus is Lord and because he's coming back, are encouraged to persevere, to remain faithful in the midst of opposition and persecution. That's the kind of the big aim, the hope thing I'm hoping that we'll see uh, as we make our way through this book. Second thing, my approach to this um, is a minority approach. My understanding of this book reflects a minority understanding of this book. And I just, I just need to acknowledge that because in the course of this study, you're going to hear me say things and you're going to roll your eyes and shake your head and say, are you kidding me? And I'll just tantalize you with a couple of things, okay? A couple of big deal things. When I tell you that Satan, that don't roll your eyes, shake your head, stand up and protest and leave the room, okay? When I tell you that Satan was bound by the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, some of you may say, you're crazy. Well, that's what I'm going to say to you. And the reason I'm going to say that to you is because I come at this book from a different perspective. It is a minority view. I happen to believe it's the right view. I wouldn't teach it if I weren't firmly convinced that this is what I think is the required understanding, the required interpretation of this book and of particular passages. Same thing with respect to the millennium. You're going to go off the charts when you hear me tell you that we're in the millennium right now. We'll get there, and we'll actually get there in three weeks because I want to illustrate some of what I'm sharing with you tonight in three weeks. So you don't have to wait for six months to hear us talk about 
that particular passage. Now, th- this, this is a little bit, and I, I just recognize this, this is a little bit like a PC trying to talk to a Mac. You know, I mean, these are two different operating systems, and to try to get two different operating systems to talk to each other is an enormous challenge, okay? And and that really, as as I mentioned this second point to you, uh, that I'm coming at this from from a different perspective, The, the concern here that I have, a second concern that I have, is that we have a proper set of interpretive guidelines for coming to this book. If, if you want, this number A is the big, the big aim here. Point B, I'm going to write this word for you. Hermeneutics. Hermeneutics. Okay? Who is Herman? Eudics. Herman E. Eudics. Hermeneutics is, is the biblical discipline of interpretation, the rules of interpretation, the rules that we bring to the study of Scripture and by which we interpret the Scriptures. And, and what I want to suggest to you and what I hope we'll see over the course of these weeks is that these are rules and principles that are not imposed upon the Scriptures, but they are rules and principles which arise out of the Scriptures. And what I'm aiming at here is for us to begin, and and please don't, um, I'm not treating you like kindergartners as I say this, because I know you've thought about these things. Uh, I, I don't think you'd be here tonight if you hadn't thought about these things quite a lot. But what I'm, what I'm anxious for us to accomplish here is that we gain a greater understanding of how the Bible thinks about itself, if I can put it that way. I, w- I want us to understand how the Bible understands itself. Okay? And so, you know, this, this, is, the, this is the business of seeking to identify rules of interpretation, principles of interpretation, or how the Bible really understands itself so that when we come to the revelation, we have a grid. And as best we can identify it, we have the Bible's grid for interpreting the revelation. Okay? So that's number two. H-E-R-M-E-N-E-U-T-I-C-S. Hermeneutics. Okay. Now, again, so another you can impress your friends at lunch tomorrow with this word. Now, here's the third thing, um, and, I, and this is really a, a very important preliminary remark. Um, I, I, there, there look like there are 50 or 60 people in this room. My guess is that there are a number of different positions represented in this room related for example, to this matter of the millennium. Okay. Um, my third point is this. Our differences of understanding with respect to the revelation, with, our, with respect to our millennial views, are not matters that should divide us as Christians. Okay. We're here as brothers and sisters, and the rallying point for us is not a millennial view, it's not a view of baptism, it's not a view of election and predestination. I have convictions about those things. To the best of my ability, I communicate those convictions. We have a confessional standard as a church, the Westminster Confession of Faith, larger and shorter catechisms. As an ordained minister in the PCA, I was required to take a vow in which I indicated my willingness to submit to the system of doctrine represented in that confessional statement. I have great conviction about the matters that are uh, present, uh, talked about, discussed, elaborated in the Westminster Confession of Faith, larger and shorter catechisms. The rallying point for me is not the confession of faith. The rallying point for me is not my particular understanding of the revelation or my particular millennial view. The rallying point for me is Jesus Christ. 
and, and the scriptures which tell me about Jesus Christ. Now, here's what that means. What that means is that brothers and sisters who look to the same book as the final and ultimate authority in matters, all matters of faith and practice, who look to the same Savior, Jesus Christ, who is presented to us in the scriptures, sober-minded, serious, reflective, God-fearing brothers and sisters can come to that same book, can come to different conclusions, can debate those differences vigorously and passionately, and when the debate is over, embrace one another as brothers and sisters and not separate from one another over those matters. When it comes to my responsibilities as an officer in this, in this denomination, I have subscribed to a particular standard. But when it comes to a person outside this church or even in this church who has a different view of the particular things we're going to talk about, this person is my brother. This person is my sister. And I just don't believe that it's right nor does it speak well to the world of the unity that Christ has effected through his cross if we separate over matters of secondary importance. Now, let me just elaborate that a little bit. I said we can talk about these things vigorously, we can debate them thoroughly, we can become energetic about them, and after we've debated them, with our respective conclusions, we embrace one another as brothers and sisters, I believe, I really believe that that speaks much more powerfully of the unifying effect of the cross than does the other approach. There is another approach, and the other approach is don't talk about controversial things. Just talk about Jesus. Well, I don't know. Yes, exactly. Jesus is rather controversial. So, But you understand? You, you can say, well, let's not talk about family business. Let's not get too energetic or too passionate about these internal things because the world might look at us and say, gee, these people, do they really love each other? That's one approach. But I think the stronger testimony of the unity of the church of Jesus Christ is when brothers and sisters discuss and debate vigorously because of their love for Christ and their love for the scriptures, and having debated vigorously, say to the world, we are brothers and sisters. We have a difference of opinion. We're going to debate our differences of opinion. But the thing that unites us is the person of Jesus as he is revealed to us in his word. Does that make sense? So um, I, I just want to say that because if you, as we make our way through this uh, and think about these things, um, if you disagree, let's talk. Let's talk. And let's show the world that while differing, we can embrace one another and love one another and show to the world that the cross unifies widely divergent people, not just around theological issues, but racial and socioeconomic and ethnic and all kinds of issues. The cross overcomes those things. Okay? So these are not matters that should divide us. Okay, Roman numeral two. This is going to be a review for um, a lot of you. Um, it may be a kind of a, a first exposure to others of you. But what I want to talk about for just a few minutes is the basic architecture of the Bible. And I think I do this in just about any class I teach. I see people smiling and maybe nodding off here for the next few minutes. But the reason that I want to do this is because, is, is because of this second point um, that I'm very concerned about, and that is this attempt to interpret the Bible correctly, seeking to understand the Bible as the Bible understands itself. Okay? There is an architecture to the Bible. Um, the Bible is not. It is made up of 66 books, lots of different authors. Um, the books of the Bible written across centuries and millennia in three different languages, predominantly Hebrew, Greek, but also some Aramaic. Um, tremendous diversity, obviously, to the scriptures. There is history. There are 
psalms, which are poetry. There is prophetic literature. There are laws. There are um, all kinds of types of literature uh, in the scriptures. But there is in the Bible a continuity that ties all of this diversity together, that ties all of these 66 books together. Um, And that continuity is reflected in what I'll suggest to you is the basic architecture, or if you want to think in terms of story, which is a, you know, a a kind of a, a... popular way to think about life these days, right? Particularly among the younger generations. Tell me your story, okay? Well, there is a story that is told in the scriptures. One story, okay? And as I've, um, as we've talked about it in this church, I like to, I like to break this one story. And I, I, I really think this is faithful to the scriptures. I don't think it's imposing something on the Bible, but I think it helps us to understand how this story unfolds. Um, I like to break this story down into into a kind of a four-act play, okay? Four major acts. And what's the first act? Creation, okay? Creation, Genesis 1 and 2. Where, um, I mean, we, I could, you know, we could spend a good bit of time talking about themes that are established in Genesis 1, motifs that are established in Genesis 1 and 2 that continue through the whole of the scriptures, okay? Um, creation is the first act in this drama um, where God is established uh, as the author of creation, the Lord over creation. I think that's what the the flow of Genesis 1 takes us to. It takes us through the days of the creation to the seventh day where God is exalted and enthroned as Lord over all. He is the King of glory. You're hard-pressed to go any place in the Bible uh, and escape or avoid that, that, um, that theme as it continues to be reflected throughout the Scriptures. So, um, act one is creation. Act two, oops, B. Act two is what? The fall. Which, more recently, I've come to think that whole idea of the fall is better served by the word rebellion. Rebellion is what is described for us in Genesis chapter three. And the scriptures are uniform in this conviction that it is because of the sin of Adam and Eve, the sin of Adam, the disobedience of Adam, in which Eve was complicit. The sin of Adam has plunged all of his descendants, the whole of humankind, into a condition of misery and despair. Okay? The reason people die is because Adam sinned. Right? The reason my six-year-old daughter skinned her knees all those years ago is, she is absolutely right, is because Adam sinned. It is because of the disobedience of Adam that the whole of humankind is plunged into this condition of, uh, of despair and death and hopelessness and brokenness and all the rest. And we carry it around with us in lots and lots of different ways. Some more obvious, some more subtle. So creation is the first act in the play. Fall or rebellion is the second act in the play. And then the third act, the act that should concern us the most, at least at this point, because we're living in the midst of the third act of the play, is what? Redemption. Redemption, okay? Where is the first, you're going to know this, this is what's fun about being someplace for an extended period of time. You say things over an extended period of time, and folks start to anticipate it. Where is the first word of redemption spoken? Bingo! Genesis 3.15. 
Now, just to familiarize ourselves with that passage, because it is critical, frankly, it's critical for understanding the revelation. It's it's a critical piece of the interpretive grid that we need in order to interpret the revelation. And I can't see that clock back there, so I have no idea what time it is. That's real dangerous for you. Okay, Genesis 3.15, you know, you know what has happened thus far. The serpent has entered the scene, uh, has enticed and tempted the woman. The woman then has gone to her husband. The husband has uh, believed the lie. Um, as a result of believing the, the lie, both he and his wife, uh, from, from being in a condition of, of blessedness and joy and happiness and fruitfulness and abundance, they are suddenly terrified and in the bushes hiding. Okay? I mean, it's the, the, the disjunction is huge and radical. And, you know, some, maybe, maybe a couple of years ago, um, I'm, I'm not sure, um, it, it just struck me that after the initial interrogation, right, in Genesis 3, verses 9 and following, when God uh, comes to the or 8 and following, the man and the woman hear the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Boy, that verse is important. Here, here's the point, bottom line. It doesn't sound like it in that verse, it, but, but here's what's going on. God knows there are rebels in his garden, and he is looking for them. He is not out for a casual Sunday afternoon walk in the park. There are rebels in his domain, and he is looking for them. He is searching for them. The verbs in the verse um, make that very clear. So God is coming for them. There's this initial interrogation, verse 9. God called to the man, where are you? They have this initial exchange. But after that initial exchange, I find it wonderfully comforting and very significant that the first person addressed is not the man, not the woman, but the serpent. The serpent. And in his words to the serpent... After cursing him, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go. Dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Then in verse 15, verse 15, the whole of the rest of redemptive history is set up for us in that verse, that single verse. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. What is being said there is simply this. Throughout the whole course of redemptive history, there will be two peoples. There will be the people of faith, and there will be the people of unbelief. Okay? There will be a faithful seed, and there will be a seed that opposes faith. And they will be in conflict with each other across the whole of human history. Okay? That's a theme that is going to recur repeatedly in the Revelation. Okay? But then, from plural nouns and pronouns, your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. It all gets distilled down to two. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. And what that is, that 15th verse, in effect, if I could paraphrase it this way, is God's Resolve and promise from the seed of the woman to bring forth a conqueror who will crush the head of the serpent. And in crushing the head of the serpent, he will overthrow evil. He will eradicate evil. He will remove evil from his realm. And the outcome of that will be the final restoration of things so that things are fixed and restored in the way they ought to be. Okay? Genesis 3.15 is the seminal promise in the whole of Scripture. It is the seminal prophecy in the whole of Scripture. Someone has said 
that the whole of the rest of the Bible after Genesis 3.15 is a series of footnotes to Genesis 3.15. Now, the only thing I don't like about that is that you tend to footnote stuff that doesn't seem to be as important as the stuff in the main text, right? So I think what I would prefer for us to understand is that the whole of the rest of the scriptures, in one way or another, is an unpacking and unfolding and exposition of this initial promise made in Genesis 3.15. Genesis 3.15 sets the trajectory for what God is going to do across the whole of the rest of human history. And it is all going to center upon this seed of the woman who will come to crush the head of the serpent and eradicate evil. And notice that in the process of doing that, what's going to happen? He's going to be bruised, okay? He's going to be bruised. Now, we have the advantage of being on this side of the cross, being able to look backward at the cross and say, well, I'll be. (laughs) Kind of looks like that's what happened at the cross. The seed of the woman who appeared to suffer a mortal wound, in fact, did not suffer a mortal wound, but overcame the wound that was inflicted upon him. And by overcoming that wound, through his resurrection and subsequent ascension, Jesus has crushed the head of the serpent. By his cross, by his entombment, by his resurrection, by his ascension, and now by his rule and reign. He has and is crushing the head of the serpent. It was at the cross that the serpent's head was crushed. The cross is the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. And everything across the whole of the Old Testament moves us in the direction of the cross. So, redemption, you see that there are two, right? I've got two little sub-things under that that letter. If if we think of the scriptures as a four-act play, in the third act there are Two scenes, okay? Two scenes to the third act. Promise and fulfillment. Okay? Promise and fulfillment. Basically, everything from Genesis 3.15 to the appearing of John the Baptist and the appearing of Jesus Christ is promise. Everything following the appearing of Jesus Christ, his life and his ministry, his death, resurrection, and ascension down to the present and beyond us to his final return is fulfillment. Okay? So Old Testament period is promise. New Testament period is fulfillment. Here's what I want to underscore. And again, I believe this is the Bible speaking to us. What I want to underscore here is the idea of continuity. Is there discontinuity in the scriptures? Sure. There is an old covenant and there is a new covenant. But what you must not conclude from that is that the old was somehow a failure and the new is a second attempt to overcome what the first failed to overcome. Okay? You, you don't want to think that way, because that's not the scriptures. Okay? There is continuity, promise, and fulfillment. Is there discontinuity? Sure. And here's, you know, this can be illustrated uh, in a number of different ways, but an illustration that I've used, it's helpful to me, hope it's helpful to you. Some of you have heard it, but I'm going to use it again. It's the illustration of a tulip bulb. Okay, some you all who are from the north, maybe you did this. You put tulip bulbs in the ground, right? Now think about this. What goes in the ground? It's kind of brown, lumpy, unattractive thing, right? But everything that a tulip will become is contained in that tulip bulb. There isn't anything that you add to the tulip bulb to make the tulip bulb produce 
the tulip that naturally emerges from it. The miracle is, the wonder is, you stick this thing in the ground in, when do you do it? December, November? I don't even know. You know, fall, late fall. You stick it in the ground. It goes through this long, nasty, hard, cold winter. And son of a gun, in March, April, depending on where you live, what starts poking through the ground? Little green things. And what comes after the little green things? A green stalk. And what's at the end of the stalk? Red or yellow or whatever color. Who's from Grand Rapids, Holland? What color are tulips? You know, all of those different colors, okay? Now look, you look at fulfillment and you think, that doesn't have anything to do with what went in the ground in the fall. They look so wildly different from each other. But everything that went in the ground, or or the thing that went in the ground, contains everything that that tulip will be when it comes out of the ground in the spring. And here's the thing, great thing about tulips, another reason, it's a wonderful illustration. They are relentless. They can't be stopped. We had a friend who had bought a house in, in December one year, up north, up in Indiana. And on the edge of his patio was a hay bale. And in April or May, kind of middle, late spring, God, this is no kidding. These little green things start shooting up from this hay bale. Somebody had put a tulip bulb off the edge of the patio. Somebody then put a hay bale on top of that tulip bulb. And in the spring, that relentless, not-to-be-denied tulip poked its head through that hay bale and came all the way up through that thing and then flowered. Okay? Look. The promises that are contained in Genesis 3.15 and the exposition of that promise, these things are relentless and not to be denied. And they find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Does the promise give full expression as does the fulfillment? No. Is there the beauty in the fulfillment that there is in the promise? No. But there is a continuity between the two. And that's what, we're, that's what we're suggesting about the relationship of the Old Testament and the New Testament. Okay? So, Act 1, creation. Act 2, fall. Act 3, redemption. And Act 4, consummation or restoration. And I, restoration is a good word. Who said that? You get the cupid doll for the evening. Restoration is such a great word. Consummation is another good word. And as we'll, we'll see this, I hope, we'll see it as we kind of make our way through the revelation. What, the, what, this, what this final act in the play is, is Jesus finishing what he started. Jesus finishing what he started. Okay? The Father promises that he's going to send a warrior king who will crush the head of the serpent, eradicate all evil, and restore things to the condition they're supposed to be in. And that warrior king is Jesus. And when he comes, he begins, and this is critical, he begins this work of restoration, but the consummation of that restoration does not not come until his second appearing. Okay? So, this is our chapter. This is why the Bible occupies, this is why so much of the Bible is occupied with this particular chapter, because we're in it. This is what matters most to us. It's where we are. Okay? Creation, fall, redemption, consummation. Now, let me give you, let me give you just three interpretive keys as we come to the revelation, okay, itself. And then hopefully we'll have time for you to ask a couple of questions. Number one, and this will come as no surprise, the revelation is highly symbolic. Highly symbolic. You you can't read the revelation in the way you read a gospel or in the way that you read the king's. 
uh, nor can you read it in the way that you read the Psalms. Okay? It is a highly symbolic book. And, and again, this commentator, Derek Thomas, and, and a number of others whom I'm consulting, I'm, I'm consulting five or six commentaries as I have made my way and will continue to make my way through this thing, will suggest to you that the best way to read the Revelation is to read it as a picture book. Okay? Now, you know, it almost, you know, my knees knock a little bit when I suggest that to you, only because I'm mindful of the fact that people through the years have asked me and may ask me again, do you take the Bible literally? Well, I do take the Bible literally. But I want, I want you to understand, particularly for those of you who are, are newer to Christ the King, I want you to understand what I mean by that. When I say I take the Bible literally, I say a lot of things about that, but to take the Bible literally means to take passages, books, types of literature according to their nature and intent. Okay? When you, when you take the Bible literally, you're taking the Bible according to its nature, or a book of the Bible, according to its nature and according to its intent. So, for example, when you read uh, in Isaiah, don't have the passage, but, uh, or in the Psalms, when, when, you, when you read about mountains leaping and trees clapping their hands, do I take that literally? I do. It's poetic language. It is describing the euphoria of the creation at the prospect of being liberated from the curse. Okay? Do I take it literally? I do. Do I expect in the new heaven and the new earth for mountains to be running around, for trees to be clapping? No, I do not. But when Paul in Romans chapter 8 talks about the creation being freed from its bondage to decay, right? I have the expectation in the new heaven and the new earth that in some sense, the creation, having been liberated from its bondage to decay, will exhibit and manifest the glory of God in ways that it simply can't here and now. And so it's poetic language that describes that, that fact. Okay? So do I take the Bible literally? Yes, I do. And when I come to the Revelation, I recognize that I'm dealing with a different kind of literature, apocalyptic literature, literature that is highly symbolic. And here's the thing. These symbols are not, they're not the fruit of John's overworked poetic imagination. Okay? Now, that's real important. What are they? These images in the Revelation, all of them, these symbols are grounded and rooted in the Old Testament. Okay? I hope we, we will be able to see the connection between specific images in the Revelation and their connection or their, their uh, origin in the Old Testament. Okay? Let me, let me give you an example. Look at Revelation chapter 12. And just, um, we'll, we'll talk about this in three weeks, but just, uh, just make a note of this. that I believe that Revelation chapter 12, as we, we'll talk about the structure and outline of the book, Revelation chapter 12 represents the redemptive center of this book. The redemptive center of this book. What Revelation 12 does is tell us the story of redemption. Very concisely, very compact. But it tells us the story of redemption. And look at the, look at the image that is used. I'm just going to read the first six verses. Um, Great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the, moon and, uh, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant, was crying out in birth pains, and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. 
Now, you've got to know that that's symbolic language, right? You've got to know that. Just Verse 4, his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. The dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Does that language sound at all familiar to you? Try Psalm 2, the first of the Messianic Psalms. He will rule the nations with a rod of iron. Okay? Comes right out of the Old Testament. Uh, her child was caught up to God and to his throne. What's that sound like? That's not Old Testament, that's New Testament. What does that sound like? Jesus. And what? The ascension to the throne, where he is currently seated and from which he rules and reigns over everything. He is the king right now. Okay? And then this, and the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. She fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared for her by God. What does that sound like? Does that sound like the Exodus? Fleeing into the wilderness to a place that God has prepared for her where she is kept and nourished for 1,260 days? What did God do with Israel in the wilderness? Nourished her. Gave her manna when she complained about the manna. Gave her quail until the quail became a stench in her nostrils. Gave her water out of a rock. Okay? Just one example. This is, this is Old Testament imagery that is now being applied to the people of God. Okay? We'll, we'll be able to elaborate this more. Um, if you jump down it, later in, uh, in chapter 12, um, Verse 13, when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great evil, so, uh, eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time, times, and half a time. Given the two wings of an eagle, in, again, in the wilderness where she is nourished. What does that sound like? It's the Exodus story. Go back to Exodus 19. God speaks to Israel and says what? I brought you to myself on eagles' wings. He brought Israel to Mount Sinai where he married her and made her his bride and nourished her while she was in the wilderness. See, these symbols that are, that are pervasive through this book all have their origin in the Old Testament. These things are not, they're not the, the kind of the, the fruit of John's overheated imagination. Now, why do I say that? Well, I say that because, and okay, I'm not here to pick a fight, okay? But so many folks come at this book in that way. Like there are these mysterious symbols and things that we need to we need to sort out and figure out. Now is there some sorting and some figuring to be done? Yes. But what is our dictionary? What is our guide for the figuring out and the sorting out? It's the Old Testament. Okay? I'll just give you a kind of a classic illustration of this. This is years ago, admittedly, but it stuck with me. I was channel surfing probably had gotten our first remote thing, and I was fascinated by the thing, and so I just surfed through the channels. And I came to the religious channel, and there was a guy who was teaching on the Revelation, and he came to the passage that talks about Gog and Magog, and he wrote Gog on the board, on the whiteboard, and he identified the first G as Gorbachev. And the, and the second letter, O, was some other Russian general, and the third letter, G, was some other influential Russian person, because his conviction was that to the north there was this country, this nation, that was going to march across Israel. He was convinced that the day was at hand, Gog was, it was Russia. Now, when we get to Gog and Magog, we'll talk about who Gog and Magog are. But you see what I mean? Rather than thinking that John had an overactive imagination and came up with these symbols that we have to try and figure out, 
we find the answers to the clues, if you will, in the Old Testament. They're all there. Okay? So, that's interpretive key number one. Highly symbolic, rooted in the revelation. Here's a second interpretive key. Keep this phrase in mind. Progressive recapitulation. Okay, now I'm not trying to get smart or anything here. I'm trying to give us some language that helps us understand what is going on with this book. Progressive. Where's my other marker here? Progressive. Recapitulation. Progressive recapitulation. And I, I just I realize that I've skipped over Roman, Roman numeral three, but we'll, we'll, we'll have to do that another time because we're about out of time. Progressive recapitulation. What do we mean by that? Well, here's what we mean. There is progress in this book. And I want to encourage you to read and reread and reread the Revelation. And, and if you can, read it in one sitting, okay? Read it all the way through, start to finish. And here's the basic progression. The book moves in the direction of the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. The final overthrow of the serpent, the final overthrow of evil, the eradication of evil, the final judgment of evil, and the inauguration of the eternal state, the new heaven and the new earth. It moves in that direction through the seals and the trumpets and the bowls. Okay? But there is also in the book what we call recapitulation, telling portions of this redemptive story over again. Okay? What is a recap? It's, it's a retelling, right? Or a review of the story. So what we get as we move through the Revelation is progress. It moves in the direction of final judgment, the final overthrow of evil. But in the course of that movement, we get recapitulation. We get elements of the story told from different perspectives. And I'd suggest to you that Revelation chapter 12 is, one of, is an illustration of this idea of recapitulation. Again, it's, it's after 6 o'clock, we've got to stop. But let me, just, let me just suggest that you read chapter 12, and in chapter 12, you will see phrases that tie those two passages together. And basically, what we're seeing in Revelation chapter 12 is the same sort of sequence of events from different perspectives, the perspective of earth and the perspective of heaven. Okay? Same stuff from different perspectives. What are the phrases? The wilderness. The idea of the wilderness appears um, in uh, chapter 12, verses 1 through 6, and in 7 through 14 and 15. Conflict and warfare obviously appears in both places. These numerical valuations, 1,260 days, time, times, and half a time. 1,260 days is three and a half years. A time, times, and half a time. Three and a half times. The, the numerical valuations tie this chapter together. And so we'll see this. We'll see recapitulation throughout this book. Illustration that I've... Uh, Again, I found helpful. It actually came out of a conversation I was having with a couple of our members. Imagine that you have, if I can do this quickly, imagine that you have three snapshots, okay, three pictures. And on those three pictures, there are numbers. Okay? On one of the pictures is this. Okay. On the next of the pictures is this. Okay. On the next of the pictures is this. This picture 
is taken from the front steps of the hospital in Pearl Harbor as ambulances are arriving. Okay? This picture is taken from the cockpit of a Japanese fighter pilot. This picture is taken from the deck of the USS Arizona. Okay? Three different ways of identifying the same event seen from three completely different perspectives. But all speaking to the same event, right? This is the kind of thing you're going to see in the Revelation. And it's, it's really an interesting thing. Once you begin to get a feel for how this book works, you'll begin to identify these places where, oh, this is familiar. I've heard this before, but this additional detail or perspective is brought to it. Okay? So that's number two, progressive recapitulation. And then I'll leave you with this. This is the third one. Look at Revelation 1, verse 9. I think this is a really, really important verse when it comes to interpreting this book. I, John, okay, John the Apostle, right? I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus Christ. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation, the kingdom, and the patient endurance that are in Jesus Christ. Why do I think this is important? I think it's important because it seems to me, as I read John's words about himself, he understood himself to be a participant in the tribulation. He was in the tribulation, together with others who were in the tribulation. But he is also a partner in the kingdom, right? And folks, that is the reality for the church. The reality for the church is that from, this is what we'll talk about next week, give you, you know, more stuff to muddle, muddle this whole thing up. From the time of the ascension of Jesus Christ, Jesus' followers, the church, have found themselves to have two things be true of them. They are in the midst of this conflict, this tribulation. Sometimes it is intense. Sometimes it leads to martyrdom. A big question is what happens to people who die because of their faithfulness to Jesus Christ. Chapter 5 or 6 will tell us, I think it's 6, when the seals are un, uh, unsealed, will tell us that the martyrs are kept under the altar. Sometimes this conflict will be that intense. Not always, but sometimes it will be. Jesus' followers are participants in the tribulation, but at the same time, they are participants in the kingdom, the unfolding, expanding, enlarging of the kingdom. And that tension being in the midst of the world, in the midst of tribulation, and yet, a, and yet a citizen in the kingdom, and a participant in the work of the kingdom, calls for patient endurance. When you're patiently enduring, what are you doing? You're waiting. You're waiting patiently. You're remaining faithful. You're enduring difficulty. Until when? Until Jesus returns and the party begins. Okay? So, we'll come back to this, but I, I want to submit to you that, one John, uh, that Revelation 1.9 is a really important um, um, interpretive guide for us. John is not looking down the corridor of history. He's not looking at things that are 100 or 200 or 600 or 4,000 years removed from him. John is a pastor commissioned by Jesus to deliver this letter Two people very much in need of encouragement, very much in need to know two things. Jesus is king. Jesus is coming back. And until he does, hang in there. Okay? All right. Let me pray. 
unless there is a question that you just have to ask. All right. If there is, come up after I pray. Thanks for your patient endurance. Let's pray. Lord, uh, thank you for... um, Thank you for your word and even this, this portion of it that, that does perplex us at times. But I pray that you give us grace uh, over the course of these next weeks and, and even months as we make our way through this book, that you would help us to see, to hear, to embrace, to be embraced by the message of this book and the hope found in this book. Uh, Be with us now as we go into this week. Uh, Encourage us, uh, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.